Wonderful. Well, let's grab out our Bibles. I want to continue where we left off last week. Looking at this, I just, I love the Gospel of John in general. And it's, it's always a, a tension and a struggle for me not to go back and preach from the Gospel of John, which I've done. We did a couple of years at one point studying through this particular book. But it's one of those areas, uh, Bill Johnson always talks about recreational reading. It's just places you always find yourself in in Scripture. It's a great gospel, and there's just so many stories that I think are rich both theologically but also practically for us. We're looking at this account of Jesus meeting the woman of Samaria at the well in chapter 4, and obviously in the interest of time, we're not developing the whole story, but picking up from verse 34 where Jesus has had this encounter and literally the the scene, just to bring us up to where we are for today, the scene is one where this woman has gone to tell everybody about this man she's met. Could it be, she says, the the saviour, the messiah, the promised one that we have all been waiting for? And so they come rushing to see Jesus. And in that very moment, as he perhaps is seeing in the, with the disciples these people coming out. Verse 30 says, people coming out to see him, to encounter him. We read this particular verse, and before we get there, I'll leave you in anticipation. Let's pray, because I nearly forgot to do that. Lord, forgive me. So, Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your love and your goodness and your grace, your mercies that are new for us today. Thank you for this word that is alive It is living, it's active in our hearts. Thank you that your word never returns void. So I pray that you would plant seeds in our hearts, that you'd water them, that they would bear fruit, bear a mighty harvest for the glory of your name, King Jesus. Just open our eyes to see you more, open our hearts to know you, encounter you afresh. Thank you that you're here, that... As you proclaimed your kingdom, you said your, your kingdom is it's right here. It's within reach. It's at hand. So would we have eyes to see and ears to hear? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read this passage of Scripture, and then we will launch into what I have on my heart for us today. Jesus said to them, being the disciples in verse 34, John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? We looked at this last week. This is a parable that he's quoting a saying. He's effectively saying, you, you know this saying. You know well the saying and the principle it implies that there's yet four months and then comes the harvest. Instead, he says, look, some translations say, wake up, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is saying there's a harvest right here and two things, again, by way of review, that hopefully should strike us. Certainly, they strike me every time I read this story. Is number one, here is a great harvest. If you read on, it's incredible. The whole region comes and encounters Jesus and many, many, it says, believe that he is indeed who he claimed to be, the saviour of the world, the Messiah. There's an incredible harvest, possibly one of the greatest harvests in Jesus' ministry in terms of salvations. And yet here's what's interesting about this harvest. The first thing is that it happens in arguably the most unlikely place 
at the most unlikely time through the most unlikely people. Did you catch the theme? In fact, there's nothing likely about this story or scenario at all. And not only does it happen in very unlikely circumstances, but the disciples who are following Jesus, of, of all people, they should have been attuned to Jesus' plan, to his strategy. They'd been with him for some time. And yet we see all the way through this story, they're the last ones to find out what on earth is happening here. They have no idea what they thought was an inconvenience, a place to be endured, perhaps a people or a problem to be dealt with becomes the very moment that God moves in the midst of. And so we ask this question. Well, first of all, there was an encouragement that it doesn't matter what, what the seasons of life might look like in the natural. And, and I want a little aside from that. You know, it, it is good for us to press in, to believe for things, for our lives, for our city, for our church. We all have those things. When the Lord does this, when the Lord comes, when we see a great move of his spirit, when, when there's restoration, when there's healing, like let's continue to believe for those things. But let's not lose sight of the harvest that's now and the harvest that we can find and know in the midst of any season and any circumstance in our lives. And in fact, as I look back at my journey, it's often the most difficult seasons. It's often when in the natural, everything has gone pear-shaped. When there's significant trials, significant difficulties that you find yourself in the midst of. As you look back, often they're the times that God does the most in us and through us. It can be those seasons that stand as a witness to his glorious grace more than any success or victory we will experience. So that's, that was really the message last time. Jesus saying, don't get so caught up in saying, well, in, in four months, when we're through this season, when we're past this time, when this happens or that happens or we arrive at this sort of a place, at this sort of a time. Stop getting caught up and discounting your season and your circumstances. And that brings us really to what I believe is a, a second lesson that we can learn from this particular story. Because not only was this unlikely in the place and the time and the people that it occurred through, it was a very unusual way in which it happened. Not just an unlikely place, but an unlikely manner. So I want you to read with me verse 6. And as you prepare to read this verse, as it pops up on the screen in a moment, hopefully, let me ask you the question, how did this unfold? Like what was the catalyst for this great harvest, for this scenario that we've read, we've looked at the result, we've looked at Jesus' instructions, and let's rewind the clock back. And perhaps we should ask not how did it happen, but how did it not happen? We've talked already about the fact that the disciples were there in the middle of a, a no-name place and they've headed off to get food. Perhaps that was Jesus' design. Like, What would have happened if Jesus and his disciples, I like to imagine these hypothetical scenarios, if, if Jesus did perhaps let them in on the agenda and the plan. If he said, guys, I know we're going to head to the middle of nowhere, but don't worry, I actually have a great plan to be outworked. 
there's actually going to be an incredible harvest of souls. Remembering these guys were always shoot first and ask questions later. They're always grab the sword, call down fire and argue about who can sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus when he's in the glory. So this is the type of characters we're talking about. What would the discussion have been? I imagine they would have been saying, great, okay, well, if that's the plan, here's what we need to do. We've got to organize a campaign. We've got to do some you know, evangelistic tracks. We need to find some local entertainment, perhaps, put on a conference, event. We need to make sure we've got connections with significant people. I mean, I'm just offering some suggestions. Maybe it would have been a different path. Maybe they would have said, well, here's what we need to do. We need to be fasting and praying. We need to be on our knees. We have got to make this happen. And I would suggest that all of those things are not bad things in and of themselves. There's seasons for all of these things. But sometimes the harvest not only comes in the most unlikely places, but it comes in the most unlikely ways. Are you ready now to see what the catalyst was for the greatest harvest, arguably, in Jesus' ministry? It's so simple, you might even miss it. There's one person, that's probably my mother. Thanks, Mum. Let's move on. Chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus being wearied, as he was, understandably, they've been traveling for some days, it says he stops and he takes a seat beside the well, and if you read on, he stops to take a drink. How many of us, I mean, you probably all say yes, because we know the story, but how many of us in the natural would have expected that kind of an outcome? Here is Jesus. He's the saviour of the world. He is on mission to proclaim the kingdom. He's out of the way, off the beaten track. What's he going to do to bring this about? He's going to stop. He's going to sit down and he's going to take a drink. And as you read the story unfold, there comes the woman and the rest, as the saying goes, is history. You see, sometimes the harvest comes in different ways. And I think myself, how often do we miss what God wants to do? Because we overthink it, we over-strategize it, we over-complicate it. Maybe we make it all about me. Or maybe none of you do. Maybe this is just me. Because <laughs> I was thinking through this just this past week, and I did share last Sunday, uh, just a, one of those really spirit-led conversations that I'd had with someone during the week out of the blue where the Lord had really moved and encouraged and touched someone's life. So I thought maybe I'd share a different sort of story this morning, just so you don't get the wrong impression that every conversation a pastor has is spirit-led and anointed. We were, uh, this is the context of the conversation, we were overseas for my brother's wedding and the wedding was over, we had a bit of a holiday at the end, and one particular night my brother suggested to me, he said, why don't we go out to the pub and watch the cricket? It's the Ashes Test that was on, Steve Smith was there ready to make a record-breaking century, so why not? We're in the middle of Indonesia, found this little pub, it was him and uh, one of his other friends, and I've got to be really careful because, I'm just being honest here, I love my brother very dearly, and none of my siblings are walking with the Lord. And there's a very fine line between 
when you love someone, sharing your faith in a constructive way. Can we just leave it there and not, not uh, open up that whole particular Pandora's box? So I've been trying to be careful and I had been so good for so long. And maybe it was the ashes, maybe it was the uh, beverage that we were drinking. I'll leave that to your imagination. But we were sitting there and he was with a, a friend of his just talking about different things. And uh, I can't even remember how we got there, but what I remember clearly was a particular comment that I'd obviously made and I just can't help myself sometimes. And it was his friend, actually, who stops mid-sentence and he looks at me and he's like, oh, so you want to go there, do you? He paused for a moment and he said, well, let me just say this. Just remember, you started this. So... That was the opening line of the conversation, and who knows, that's probably the time to just retreat and go back to watching the Ashes cricket. But I have this thing, as I said, I'm sure that nobody else struggles with this, but in those particular moments, there's almost this religious duty, this sense of, I've got to win this argument. So it was two against one, and we discussed all sorts of various things, and, you know, as most conversations unfold, you see that people have generally some just stuff and this is a wonderful moment to air anything and everything that they'd like to. And so we continued and Steve Smith scored his 100 and then eventually the pub said, look, we're closing, you're going to have to leave. That's how long the conversation had gone for and continued in the street and in the taxi drive on the way home. So it's amazing, isn't it, how you can be in the moment and you think this is, this is fantastic and this is going really well and then you wake up the next morning and it's like this and you're just like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? And I was actually quite, I was wrestling with the Lord, I was discouraged, I had a, a chat with my lovely wife who's always the, the voice of reason and I said, I, I don't know what it is, like I, I just feel like I, I had all these good arguments you know, and, and why is it that it felt like everything that I said, not only did it not get anywhere, but if anything, it made things worse than when I began? Like, what, why, is it, why is it that I cannot convince people? And it was in that particular moment, just in that conversation, where the Lord just, as he does, he drops this little thing in your heart, and he's like, well, can you see the problem right there. Who have you made this all about? It's all about you. It's all about what you can do to convince people. And I've had this habit, and as I said, this is just a moment of pastoral honesty from my late teens when I really committed my life to the Lord, even though I grew up in a Christian household. That's the moment I really decided I'm following Jesus. There was this, this thing that just rose up in me. i you know, not a good thing of I can debate people into the kingdom, you know, like a couple of left jabs and a right hook and that's it. We'll beat them over the line and get them saved. And I can tell you honestly, as I look back over, you know, now a 20-year journey, I can't think of one person who I have ever successfully beaten into the kingdom <laughs> through my own brilliance and the quality of my arguments and the unfailing logic. And yet there's so many other moments, like last week, where the Lord just leaves and you're able to bring some truth 
and some direction and there's just an open door to share the gospel. See, this is my question. How many times do we either avoid or sometimes abort the harvest? And as I look back at that conversation, I really was convicted. I felt like the Lord was saying, see, if you had just been able to just for one moment, if you could have just kept your big mouth shut, if you could have just stopped long enough to listen for my voice, what sort of a harvest could we have seen? If I could just stop long enough to get over myself, to stop thinking this is all about me and it's all going to be about me in whatever area of your life that might apply to. Maybe it is in that place where the Lord can finally say, oh, he's finally stopped. He's finally sitting down to take a drink. Maybe we can actually accomplish something now at this particular point. Maybe this particular picture will work better for you. I remember when I was, uh, some years ago now, I went for a ride with my girls, as I love to do, and my second eldest, she's always the determined one. We'd gone on this particular ride, probably five, ten minutes into the journey, up and down some hills, and I could see the whole time she was struggling on this little bike of hers. And I thought, that's unusual, because normally she's out the front, you know, she's one of those kids, you've got to hold her back. But she was struggling along behind and we got halfway up this one particular hill and I looked around, I could see she was crying, which again is not like her at all. I said, sweetheart, what's the matter? And she's like, daddy, I, I don't know what this is. I don't know what's going on. I, I just, I'm struggling and I'm trying. It's just not working. I said, okay, well, just let me, let me have a look. And she had this particular bike. It was one of those, you might un understand this type of bike where the handlebars can flip around 180 degrees. So you can do tricks and different things. The only thing was you can't tell whether the handlebars are forced, facing forwards or backwards except when they were turned around, the brakes were clamped on. So she'd been riding for five or ten minutes, pushing through. As soon as I hopped on the bike, I'm like, sweetheart, your brakes are locked on. Just turn the handlebars around. She jumps back on, off she goes, and you could just see us like, oh, it's not me after all, you know, like I'm just struggling and I'm trying and I'm, and I'm pushing through in my own effort and my own steam. And, and what if in those moments we just took a moment to say, actually, Father, this isn't working. And he's like, well, it's easy. You've just got this round backwards and then off you go again. Like what, what sort of a difference would it make? if we made an intentional practice, and I'm going to call it this, to integrate into our lives rhythms of rest. Rather than just relying upon ourselves, rather than just pushing, working ourselves into the ground, this is all about me. If we stopped enough to sit down, to rest, and to take a drink. What would we see? So let's develop that a little bit and then we'll bring it to a conclusion. I want to talk about this whole idea of rest. That's the tangent. That's the theme. From as early as the creation story and account, we see this reality that God institutes for us, for humanity, a rhythm of rest. We know the story. God created, and then on the seventh day, he rested. Now, this principle was confirmed in Torah, confirmed in the law that uh, the Jewish people upheld, that we were to honor 
the Sabbath, that there was to be a rhythm of rest. And of course, that got a little out of whack in Jesus' times, which I think is why many of us even hear the word Sabbath and there's a bit of a negative connotation. Because of course, in Jesus' time, the religious authorities, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they'd taken this principle and they'd put all these laws around it. Well, you can do this and you can't do that. And of course, Jesus got into trouble because he was healing people on the Sabbath. They're like, you can't do that. You know, that's, that's a medical practice. You cannot heal people on the Sabbath and they're plucking grains of wheat and they say, well, that's harvesting. You can't do that on the Sabbath. And it's easy for us to kind of either criticize or just say, well, it's definitely not for us. That's, that's, you know, that's just not where we're at as a people, as a society. And yet I would suggest this. If ever there was a time in society that doesn't have a leg to stand on in terms of criticizing the practice of Sabbath in what we see expressed in the New and Old Testament. Surely it is our society. It is our generation. I would suggest that if there's one commandment of the Lord that all Christians at times struggle or take for granted, it is surely that commandment that we are to honour the Sabbath, that we are to incorporate into our lives what I'm calling rhythms of rest. See, sometimes even Christians can be the worst. No one here, of course, I know, talking to someone else, maybe listening to the podcast. But Christians can be the worst because not only are we ridiculously busy, but we almost see it as a badge of honor. Like I'm just working myself to the bone. I'm doing all these things and all these religious duties. and I'm reading my Bible. Everything that we do, that is out of whack in terms of what God's actually told us to do, we at times can not only disregard but celebrate. So here's what I want us to just focus on. I don't want to get caught up in the technicalities of the Sabbath, talking about well, which day we're going to worship on, etc., etc. I purely want to convey in a couple of different ways the reality and the need for us to find in our lives rhythms of rest. And I want to talk about this on two levels. Number one, on a physical level, purely physical level. And then number two, I want to go a little bit deeper. And I want to examine just for a few moments this idea of what I'm calling a, a spiritual level of rest in our lives. So let's look at this physical rest, first of all. There's one question I often ask people. If you've come to see me, I probably asked you this question. And I'll often ask people because they'll come and they'll say, well, you know, I need to see you because I'm stressed, I'm, I'm anxious, I'm tired, there's difficulties in my relationship, whatever the problem might be. And very early on, I'll say to them, well, just tell me, when was the last time, if it's a couple or a single person, whatever the case may be, when was the last time you actually incorporated into your life some rhythms of rest, be it a day off, be it a couple of day retreat, be it, it, it any kind of rest. I'll take anything. And you would be surprised. I would say at least the majority, probably the, the large majority of people who I asked that question to would answer almost in surprise. I'd say, well, I, I have no idea. Like I honestly could not tell you the last time just physically in my life there was any moment, let alone a practice of actually taking rest. And by rest, I don't mean sitting on your couch on Facebook. I mean like actual physical rest, switching off, 
unplugging, doing absolutely nothing. And so to me, it seems obvious that there is this capacity in our society that we have lost any sense of desire or capacity to put in place in our lives rhythms of rest. I saw a, um, a particular psychological report and it was assessing some of the main reasons it believed in our modern society came down to three that were the greatest triggers of the stress and the anxiety levels in our modern society. This is from a secular point of view. Do you know what number one on the list was? Number one on the list was something they called overstimulation. Now that literally means that as a society we've lost the capacity in any way, shape or form to actually switch off and disconnect. Just on a physical level. We, we, we don't know how to do it. We're so connected. We're, we're on the phone, we're on the email. We're, literally every second, for some of us, of every day is spent doing something. And if there's ever an evening, if there's ever a moment, it's almost like we feel guilty. I remember talking to some, some new parents about six months ago and they came and they were absolutely exhausted as every parent of a newborn knows all about. And I said to them, well, when was the last time the two of you just had even a couple of hours off? Like find someone, find a parent, a, a family member who can just look after your, your baby for an evening for a couple of hours. And they said, oh, we couldn't. There's no way we could, we'd feel too guilty. Which is, we'd feel too, but we can't do that. Like we're, we're neglecting our duties and often there is this almost guilt trip. If I'm unwinding, I'm neglecting my duty to something, to my work, to my family members, to myself. I've got to squeeze in every moment of every day and fill it with something. And I said to them, as I've said to myself many times, maybe the best thing for you and for your family and for your relationships and every aspect and area of your life is to find and incorporate into your life a rhythm of rest. This is something my wife and I, we've, we've often talked about, we've often tried to make a practice. And I just want to say, just on a practical level, we all unwind and relax differently. Like for me, if I'm going to have a moment of rest, I've got to get away. If I'm at home, there's things to do, there's people to see. And so my, my retreat, my personal space, is I jump in the car and normally I head down the coast. Sometimes it's the mountains. There's something about, for me, getting in the car, leaving the city, leaving all the problems and the people and move on quickly, and everything else behind. And just getting away, having a surf, there's the sand and the sun, just, just for a day, that recharges me. Whereas for my wife, she says that would be the worst, most exhausting, painful way to ever spend a day. Sitting in a car for a few hours, just no thanks. So her way of recharging is to have a night off and go shopping. I give her the credit card, I pretend that I'm not thinking about the bank balance, and she'll go spend a few hours at the mall, which for her, that's recharging and relaxing. I can't think of anything worse. There's crowds and enclosed spaces and declining bank balance, and you wake up in a cold sweat, and it's like a bad nightmare. All I'm saying is that there's busy seasons and we need to be just on a physical level aware and conscious and even keeping other accountable, keeping each other accountable at establishing in our lives, in our families, in our marriages where those are applicable, rhythms of physical rest. The Lord instituted the Sabbath for a reason. Even the land had a Sabbath. 
I mean, catch this, even the land needed to rest every seven years. We wonder why there's some of the problems going around, along. Let's not, let's not even open that can. Let's move right along. So there's a need for us to uh, establish a rhythm of rest. That's a physical rest. I want to talk about one more thing really quickly, and that's this other element or this other dimension of rest, which is something deeper. It's a spiritual rest. And to understand what I mean, just think back to when God actually instituted the Sabbath. We see, of course, that he creates, and then on the seventh day, he rests. Now, it should be obvious to most of us that the Lord is not resting because he's tired, right? He didn't get through six, six days of creation and say, well, I need a break. I need to put my feet up and have some recharge moments. So there's clearly something else going on beneath this idea or this concept of God resting and certainly a lot of commentators would say well it's because he is setting up a pattern for us to follow and I would say yes there's a there's a physical pattern there but I think there's another layer there as well and you see through each day that God creates what does he do after he creates he pronounces that it is good and then as he finishes he creates on the sixth day he pronounces what that it is very good so there is this pattern as God creates that he makes and then it's almost like he, he steps back to enjoy or to take satisfaction in that which he has created. And that particular dimension or aspect leads many theologians to believe that there is a part of this rest that's not just a ceasing from, it is that, but it's deeper and it's more. It's ceasing from in order that you might take satisfaction in. So God ceases from his work after the six days in order that he might take satisfaction or pleasure in his finished work. And I would say that that exact principle applies for us too. Hebrews chapter 4, we don't need to turn there, but it says this, there remains a rest for the people of God. So first of all, we see here that Christ came to give us rest. And most of us should say, well, Certainly that's going to involve some physical rest, but surely it's a little bit more than Christ came so that we can put our feet up and know physical refreshment. There's a deeper rest there, and he goes on, Hebrews 4 verse 10, For whoever has entered, that's the first side or the first part, has also rested, or that word literally means ceased, has stopped from his works as God did from his. Verse 11, Therefore let, let us strive to enter into that rest what's the point the point is this hebrews 4 verse 10 and 11 it gives us these two sides it says that when it comes to rest there is an entering into as much as there is a ceasing from so we could say that rest rest is not just resting from but rest true rest spiritual rest is a resting in it's a resting in the finished work of the cross it's a resting in the fullness of his provision it's a ceasing from all the works that we need to do and you see this kind of rest this is amazing it is unique 
to Christianity. It's, it's unique to Christian faith. Because regardless of your worldview, other religious systems, even if you're a secular atheist, we all, if you think about it, we have standards that we set ourselves to work towards. I've got to be a good person. You talk to anyone, there's something, there's some standard that drives them. I've got to work towards this. I've got to be a better person. I've got to have a job to provide my family. It's all working for. Whereas Christianity is the only message, it's the only worldview who says, you've got to turn that completely on its head because it's not about working for anything. It's about resting in. It's about working from the finished work of Jesus Christ. Can we get the band to come out? As we bring this to a particular conclusion. You see, there is a rest that remains for the people of God. It's utterly different and it's completely satisfying. That's why Jesus is the only one who ever walked the planet who truly can say these words. In Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will. I love that certainty. You will. You will find rest for your soul. We live in a restless time, in a restless society, not because there's not enough to do, but because we are searching everywhere to find the rest that can only ever be found in one place. And if you look at John 4, this wonderful picture of this story, Jesus encounters his woman. And she's been trying. She, Jesus says, you know, you're, you're drinking and you're thirsty again. You've tried. And she had relationships, many relationships. And the man she was with wasn't her husband. And Jesus says to her, there's another way. Come to me and drink of the water that I have and you will never thirst again. And there's an invitation as I... Read this story for each and every one of us to cease from our own works, to stop putting ourselves in the center, to stop working for, and to simply come and start trusting in and resting Him. If you want to really know and to find the harvest that God has for you, this season and every season it's my firm belief that you will never find it until we can learn to stop and to sit down long enough to take a drink to rediscover and re-establish in our lives a rhythm of rest physical rest on a practical level yes but a deeper spiritual rest our souls will ever be restless until we find the rest that only He offers. Would you close your eyes? Put your Bibles aside. It's going to spend a moment with the Lord. I'm just going to do it this way this morning. I'm just going to close in prayer. And there is a prayer team who is more than happy to pray about any and every prayer need that you have. 
But I want to give you a moment just to stop. Just to sit down right where you are and to take a drink. Might be for some of you that you're comfortable where you are and that's fine and that's great. Maybe that for others sometimes it's just significant if we respond. And you might want to just come and you can kneel where you are, you can kneel at the front. You can grab a pillow and lie down if you want. If it, whatever your posture is, whatever that looks like for you, to just stop. Stop from the striving. Stop from the, we've got to do all these things. You're pushing up the hill, carrying my bike, frustrated. God's giving us a moment just to invite him in. Cease from your striving. Stop the trying in order that we might begin to trust again. So the worship team is just going to sing over us. As that song's playing, if you do want prayer, you're welcome, as I said, to come forward. If you're just kneeling, there'll be no one coming praying for you. If you want to come forward for prayer, just stand and a prayer team member will come and pray for you. But Father, we just, we thank you for your presence this morning. That's been so evident during our time here. And we just thank you for this picture that hopefully each of us has seen in either a refreshed or renewed way. This picture of a God who invites us to come and find our rest in Him. And Lord, we want to repent where there's been times that we've taken that for granted. I certainly repent, Lord, for all the times where I get in the way because I put myself and all that I can do and all my striving, I make the whole story about me and what I can work for. I pray even, Lord, as we spend just this moment with you, that there'd be a capacity for us to leave from this place as a, a new commitment, as a new covenant to live from that place of rest. As the writer to the Hebrews says, that we would strive not just to visit, but to live in that place of rest that you will find. So come Holy Spirit, do what you want to do. We look to you.